Hi, welcome to the last episode of my podcast. Um, if you've listened to all of them, thank you very much. You go. It's been really nice for me to kind of relive them through doing this podcast and rereading these journals. Um, I've got a confession to make about the final episode of this podcast, which is that my journal actually just stops dead towards the end of Costa Rica. And I didn't actually catch up on the final leg of the journey, which was uh, to Panama City. So (laughs) that left me with wondering what I was going to do with the podcast. And what I decided to do was do a bit of detective work, see if I can figure out from... um, from my sketchbooks and my notes and my I've still got the guidebook that I was using when I originally planned this trip which is called it's called Let's Go Central America and it's the 2001 edition so got that cheap I think when I was living in Amsterdam uh, preparing for this trip so even by the time we went 2003 2004 it was already quite a few years out of date But yeah, it's still got my annotations in it from when I was planning this trip, my underlinings and my little notes. So I'm going to sort of pull all these bits of uh, information and try and give you a little picture of what the last leg of the trip was, because really my own memory is pretty rubbish. I don't remember a huge amount, Um, but hopefully by gathering all these bits of research, I can put something together to explain the last little leg of this journey. Another thing I did when I was preparing for this trip, um, I think I draw, I, there's a panel in Follow Me in my graphic novel, which is about the first part of this trip uh, in Mexico, where it shows this. I, when I was preparing for this journey, I did a lot of research with the guidebooks I had, one for Mexico, one for Central America, where I sat down and did an A4 sheet of paper for each, with Mexico it was for each state in the country, and for Central America I did one for each country. And I just kind of drew a little map in the centre of each page of the state or the country and then notes all around the edges of what I might want to see. And I've still got those. I've got this little sheaf of paper from uh, when I was planning this trip. So I've dug out the Panama one and I've been looking at that as well and making notes. So the first part of this episode will be the rest of my Costa Rica journey, uh, where I left it off last time was that we were at the Punta Arenas dock about to get the ferry to the Nicoya Peninsula in Costa Rica. Um, so I'll read the rest I'll read the rest of that first and then I'll get on to my kind of speculation and detective work section about what I did when I was in Panama before the end of the trip and flying back to the UK. So here we go, the boat dock at Punta Arenas, Costa Rica. At the dock we had another two hour wait for the ferry. But our mood was lifted by the weather. The sun had come out with a vengeance, giving us hope that our trip to the seaside wasn't going to be in vain. Our plan was to spend a week there and see how many sunny days we could get out of the rainy season. There were quite a lot of tourists on the ferry, but quite a lot of Ticos as well. (laughs) I guess that's Costa Ricans. The views were fine as we passed rocky islands and densely forested coastlines. The dock at Paquera was tiny, a single building backed by a steep wall of dense jungly vegetation. We hopped on a bus to take us to Montezuma and it climbed into the jungle. The scenery was absolutely stunning. The odd rural home or village interspersed with rolling fields full of Central American cows and lots of forest. Then the sun went down and we continued in the dark, reaching Montezuma two hours later. The central village itself looked like a tourist hotspot, tour agencies, restaurants, hotels. We walked a little way out of town to the Mochila Inn, which advertised rooms for two at ten dollars. When we got there, they said there were no rooms available. We were a bit disheartened as it was getting late and we were tired, 
but then they explained that the problem was that there was no water and they had a room if we didn't mind that. We said we didn't and they gave us a nice room with shelves and a mosquito net off a large balcony which had tables, chairs and a hammock. We were really pleased and hoped there would be water in the morning. We strolled to a restaurant on the other side of a small sandy beach for our splash out on the first day of arrival meal. An extremely polite man served us chicken and mashed potatoes and we drank in the palm trees and fairy lights. We were entertained by a large toad that hopped thoughtfully around the tables and several large crabs with vivid red, yellow and purple colouring. Then we climbed the hill back to our hotel and fell asleep. We were awoken by a strange sound, something like a large dog galloping up and down on the balcony outside. Eventually we took a peek and I was absolutely delighted to find a troop of white-faced monkeys surrounding our hotel. They were running up and down, not not on the balcony but on the roof. We threw open our window which backed onto the jungle and had an early morning monkey show. They sometimes came quite close. One of them descended to ground level and trotted around with a bandy-legged stooping walk over to a large fruit that he found on the ground. He put it under his arm and ran back up the tree, keeping an eye on us the whole time as if he was afraid we might take his prize away. Later in the day, as I climbed up to our floor, I realised that the tree above the stairs was again full of monkeys, black howler monkeys this time, sitting calmly and munching on leaves. The the white-faced monkeys are um, capuchin monkeys. We also spotted a bizote out the back, a kawati in English, and when we commented on the number of animals to the hotel's boss, he told us that the jungle behind the house was part of a nature reserve. He was an Argentinian with a Colombian girlfriend and a cute but demanding one-and-a-half-year-old son called Salvador. Salvador was always on the go. If he wasn't falling off the sofa and crying, he was trying to pull my flip-flops off or jabbing me in the eye with a pencil. (laughs) To our delight, the first day at Montezuma turned out to be really sunny. We were down on the beach early, armed with a papaya breakfast and spoons. We sat soaking up the sun and admiring the sea, feasting on glowing orange fruit. We were very happy. It turned out, however, that the first beach out of town was impossible to swim at. The riptides were incredibly strong and there were hidden treacherous rocks all along the beach under the level of the sea. But a picturesque pathway led all along the coast, passing numerous bays and beaches, all different. We followed it for a while, gobsmacked by the scenery. The beaches were all backed by dense jungle, which the path wound along the edge of. It was truly stunning to see a vast stretch of sand backed only with palm trees and then jungle, jungle and more jungle. The coastline was rugged and dramatic with black rocks jutting out of the sea. We passed small bays littered with driftwood and shells, bays where the waves hit the rocks with astounding force. At one point there was a small waterfall just off in the forest which fed a stream that ran down onto the beach and formed rivulets in the sand and then joined the sea. It was lovely that the coast was so undeveloped. There were only a few houses and hotels and they were all discreetly half hidden in the jungle. Eventually we came to our favourite beach, a very long stretch of sand with shallow but still powerful water. There were no buildings at all in the forest and only ever a couple of other people there. The sand was full of holes where crabs lived and they seemed to spend all of their time shoveling sand into their mouths and excreting tiny balls of sand as they sprinted sideways. So we spent a good first day on the beach and then retired to the hotel, which had a kitchen we could use. We were stunned by the price of food in the local supermarket, but cooking for ourselves proved marginally more cheap than eating out. The second day at Montezuma wasn't so sunny, but we relaxed in the hammock and watched an iguana and another overconfident blue jay, which hopped around the balcony and demanded food. 
I put a mouldy banana out for it, which it took one look at and then seemed to issue a torrent of abuse in my direction. (laughs) Then I put out some crumbs of crisps, the only food we had, which it pecked up quite happily. The third day we were woken early again by monkey races on the roof. It was so much fun to sit on the balcony and watch the edge of the roof where every so often tiny white hands would come down, followed by an upside-down wrinkled face. I never tired of watching how they leapt through the trees, sometimes gracefully, sometimes not, and used their tails as an extra hand. The third day was overcast again and we decided to try and walk to the next town where there was a bank to change some checks. It was a pleasant walk, if a little longer than we expected, at 7k. Again we were stunned by how posh the bank was, they had free coffee inside for the customers. We missed the bus back to Montezuma by a few minutes after going to the supermarket only to find it even more expensive than the one in Montezuma. Not wanting to wait two hours for the next bus, we began the trek home, getting two-thirds of the way before getting a welcome lift from an American tourist with his own vehicle. The weather for the rest of our time at Montezuma was mixed, but we had three really, really good beach days, so we were happy with that. On our final day, we were treated to more live monkey shows, but this time on the beach. I'd heard of places in Costa Rica where monkeys sometimes came down to the beach but wasn't expecting to see it. Oh look, there's a monkey, said Richard as we sat in the shade of a palm tree. We realised they were all around us in the trees. One came quite close and seemed to be trying to scare us off. He kept baring his teeth at us and bouncing up and down, pretending he was about to go for us. A couple of other small ones joined him in the teeth-bearing efforts, which were quite comical, as they looked like they should have been growling or something, but they made no noise at all. Suddenly the monkey gave up, hopped down and grabbed a banana skin I'd dropped earlier and it gobbled down the remains of the flesh inside. I tried to give them the remains of our papaya too but they didn't seem to want them. Later on when Richard went for a run along the beach I watched a big iguana slowly devour the banana skins. Nothing goes to waste in the jungle. I've just remembered one other trip we made while at Montezuma to another waterfall even further along the coast. We continued past our favourite beach quite a way, passing through more jungle and more bays until we came out on another long beach, at the end of which was a small waterfall, just visible in the distance and picturesque for being right on the beach. We walked over. There was a rocky outcrop with a cave and waterfall, jungle above and sand below. It was strange to see a waterfall which was emptying itself almost directly into the sea. As we walked back, we spotted a pizote up ahead of us. It wandered down onto the beach from the woods and sniffed around the rocks for a while. So after a fairly relaxing seaside break, we left Montezuma and headed over to the mainland again in the direction of the Monteverde Cloud Forest Reserve. We knew it was one of Costa Rica's tourist hotspots, but we were utterly unprepared for the scale of the money-gobbling tourism machine that we encountered there. We arrived in the early evening after a bus ride with some quite spectacular scenery, Beautifully velvety-looking mountains, dramatic and covered with thick forest and pools of low cloud. But when we arrived in the village of Santa Elena, the scene was altogether more ugly. As the passengers got off the bus, they were swamped by a crowd of manic hotel representatives who thrust adverts into our hands and gabbled at us in English, trying desperately to lure people into their respective hotels. It was almost as bad as the bus stations in Guatemala and Nicaragua, except that here everyone tried to put a veneer of excessive politeness on the frenzy. Welcome, they would yell, pushing adverts into your hands. The hotel's just here, 200 metres, no more, hot water, kitchen. We want somewhere for $10 for the two of us, I told the representative of a hostel offering dorm beds for $7 per person. You won't find anything, she said. It's a standardised price now, $7 per person. 
This was a lie, but we were tired and it was dark, so we allowed ourselves to be meekly led over to a nearby hotel with kitchen facilities by an excessively grovelling American expat. He insisted on calling Richard Sir all the time and offered to help us with our bags and made a big show of bringing us towels once we were installed in our $14 room. Let me just fold these towels for you, sir, he said. Now I'll let you rest up a minute, then I'll give you some information on the area, what's on offer. We went out to buy some food at the supermarket, relieved to get away for a little while. We had a quick look around the village. It was all tour agencies, hotels and gift shops. We looked at some souvenirs, stuffed toy quetzals, coffee filters, then bought tortillas, beans and veggies to cook for dinner. To our horror, these items cost almost as much as a meal in a restaurant. But we had a good dinner, fielded offers from our pushy host of bookings for various activities for the following day. We slept, got up early to decide what to do on the first day. We wanted to save the real hiking for the second day as we were still a little worn out from our full day of travel between Montezuma and Santa Elena. So we decided to pick one of the area's many overpriced activities for the first day. There were insect museums, serpentariums, frog museums, hummingbird and butterfly houses, canopy tours, aerial zip lines, suspension bridges over the jungle. In the end, we chose to do a three-kilometre walk over eight suspension bridges in the Salvatura Reserve. Richard also liked the look of an exhibition called Jewels of the Rainforest, the personal collection of a particular insectologist, is that a word, which displayed, which were displayed very artistically, thousands upon thousands of bugs from all over the world. We asked the Salvatura agency if they could do us a deal on the two activities together. They offered us both things at the student discount price, so we accepted. We just had time to buy some bread and water and then climbed aboard a minibus full of American youths who loudly discussed their ambitions to be lawyers and work for the UN. (laughs) They also all seemed to have visited exactly the same few spots in Costa Rica. We felt well and truly stuck in the middle of a classic tourist trail in a way that we'd never really experienced before. The country seemed entirely given over to tourism and the tourists here all seemed to be so wealthy more like holidaymakers with expensive camera and video equipment than the budget backpackers we'd be meeting all over the rest of Central America. As well-preserved as Costa Rica's natural spaces were, it felt somehow unreal and empty. We didn't see lots of examples of indigenous culture like in Mexico and Guatemala. Monteverde and Santa Elena themselves were like a huge theme park. The jungle was absolutely stunning, but we never felt that sense of truly being in the middle of nowhere, like in the Salaque National Park in Honduras, for example, or the Petén jungle, where people live and work and it feels real. And of course, it was one of those places where everything is a total rip-off. There was no way to reach Santa Elena Reserve, for example, by public transport. The only option was to pay for a $4 private jeep ride there and back. We wondered if we should have picked one of Costa Rica's less touristed national parks. Anyway, on arriving at the Salvatura reception, we were whisked off to see the Jewels of the Rainforest exhibition, while all the others got harnessed up for their canopy tour. We felt a little relieved to be separated from the throng. We were assigned a polite young biologist to give us a tour of the exhibition. He showed us around the bug displays and told us about his work in England on the Eden Project. We watched a movie by the man whose collection it was, a bearded scientist who seemed touchingly fond of all the hideous tropical bugs he filmed. (laughs) And the exhibition itself was good. Butterflies of astounding colours arranged in geometric or swirling patterns, beetles of metallic gold and silver that really did look like jewels, scorpions, spiders, grubs. It was all a mixture of beautiful and grotesque, but the presentation was excellent and informative and in places really creative. And we were amazed the next day to actually see one of the golden beetles in the street of Santa Elena. Unfortunately, it was dead. (laughs) 
What was interesting about the exhibition was the sheer variety of colours and textures of some of the bugs, iridescent. Some looked like they were made of peacock feathers or coloured sweet wrappers. And I liked the bugs that imitate plants the most. There were some butterflies that looked so much like leaves that it was astounding. Their wings even had a twig part on them at the bottom. After that, we headed off for our walk around the forest, hoping that the suspension bridges were going to prove worth the expense. To our relief, they did turn out to be pretty spectacular, extending out over valleys filled with lush jungle vegetation, providing a new perspective on it all as you peered down on the canopy from above or strolled through it with great trees reaching up on either side, covered in vines and moss and bromeliads. The giant tree ferns looked great from above. We enjoyed it as we got to see details and overviews of the forest that you can't usually get while hiking at ground level, as the vegetation is so dense. But we couldn't shake the theme park feeling, especially as the odd tourist occasionally came whizzing over above us on a zip line. <laughs> However, we enjoyed it enough to go around twice, extending the hike a bit and being sure to get our money's worth. We returned to Santa Elena again with more loud tourists and took refuge in our new hotel, one that we'd found in the morning at our originally desired price of $10 for both of us. <laughs> After a good long sleep, we got up for day two of our jungle experience. We took a 6.45am jeep to the Santa Elena Cloud Forest Reserve. All the other tourists, to our delight, chose to go to the more famous Monteverde Reserve, and when we arrived, there was only one other couple waiting to go in. We picked up a map of the hiking trails and set off. To our delight, the cloud forest proved even more stunning than what we'd seen the day before from our gimmicky platform walkways. It was truly primeval looking, as cloud forests usually are, everything smothered in layers of moss, tiny ferns sparkling with water droplets, every branch and vine beaded and dripping. There were canopies at various levels, ferns and leaves of all sizes, low down, distant and towering canopies above, where the most gigantic trees spread their branches, and these in turn held miniature forests of their own. All levels were connected by the numerous vertical lines of vines hanging straight down, and as we walked, we felt quite overwhelmed by the sheer numbers of different leaves of every shape and size. And the cloud forest flowers are also distinctive, always small and fairly few and far between. They splash delightful patches of colour amid the all phase of greens wherever they crop up. There were some white and yellow ones, but the majority are red, orange or pink. Always strange, hard, waxy things, sometimes oddly flesh-like. They sound mostly like bromeliads. At times we saw hummingbirds of various colours, emerald green, brown, glassy blue. We were forever trying to avoid stepping on fat hairy caterpillars on the trails and at one of the reserve's highest points we spotted a very large white-faced monkey who ran aggressively towards us through the branches in an attempt to scare us off. And I was quite scared. He was a lot bigger than any of the ones we'd seen at Montezuma. I looked in vain for quetzals and sloths, both animals that seemed somehow very well suited to the cloud forest environment. We had a great time wandering the trails. We walked every single one of them, about eight miles in total, up and down muddy hills and past small waterfalls and streams. There was one slightly hairy moment where we were being relentlessly hounded by a huge horsefly of some kind with big green eyes. We got so annoyed we attempted to outrun it, crashing perilously along the trail, hopping over roots and sliding in the mud. Needless to say, it was still with us every time we stopped running. <laughs> but at least the cloud forest is too cold for mosquitoes. We completed our hike at about 20 past 11, missing the jeep to Santa Elena that left at 11. Unfortunately, there wasn't another one until 1, so we drank a coffee in the reception restaurant and then headed off again into the forest. 
I attempted a sketch which was tricky as I had to try to draw while holding paper over my sketchbook to protect it from random drops of water from above. We returned in time for the one o'clock jeep. There were by then quite a few visitors to the reserve, but not half as many as at Monteverde, I'm sure. We were driven back to Santa Elena where we ate some cheap fried chicken and chips before setting our alarm for 5.30am and going to bed. We arose early again to catch the direct bus to San Jose, glad to be leaving Tourist Central. The reserve itself had been beautiful, but I really couldn't recommend the whole experience to anyone. If someone wanted to hike in a national park in Costa Rica, I'd have to tell them to try one of the less well-known ones. Again on the bus to San Jose, I realised just how different Costa Rica felt to our experiences of travelling in the rest of Central America. There were far more tourists on the bus than locals, and whenever a local got on board, it seemed like all the tourists stared at them rather than the other way around. (laughs) We spent just a couple of days in San Jose before our final trek to Panama City. We found a hotel for under $10, great value for Costa Rica, but in a nasty part of the city. The area was full of homeless people and hookers. It was perfectly safe during the day, but not that pleasant. In fact, the whole city wasn't that pleasant. But there was a novelty factor in being in such a developed city, full of all mod cons and with a few cheap options for eating, such as the huge main market with hundreds of food stalls. We did very little in San Jose except catch up on work, buy a few gifts and get our laundry done for an outrageous price that I won't even write down. (laughs) With some relief, we got packed up and headed to the Panaline bus station for our trip to Panama City. So this is the point where my journal ends abruptly. It just ends there. So... Yeah, from this point on, I'll be going into um, what I've managed to piece together from uh, photo evidence and notes and things about my time in Panama. So yeah, I don't have any notes on getting from Costa Rica to Panama, so I can't tell you what that journey was like. Um, But the only place that we did visit in Panama was Panama City and the immediate surroundings there. I mean, by this point, we were really running out of money and we just wanted sort of one final week. I think we probably spent a week there or something. So yeah, based on my sketchbook and my memories of the city, the main thing I remember is the city sort of waterfront. If you sort of go down to the waterfront in Panama City, you stand looking out at the sea, you can look in either direction and you get a very different view. Uh, I think if you look to the left, you, you see the sort of modern sort of business district of the city, which is full of skyscrapers. Um, and if you look to the right, you see the the old part of the city, which is obviously a lot more lower buildings and older buildings. So that's quite interesting, that contrast. I remember that we checked into a hotel, the best feature of which was that they didn't have a swimming pool, but guests of this hotel were allowed to use the swimming pool of the hotel next door, which was actually up on the roof of quite a tall building. And these hotels were surrounded by even taller buildings. So it was quite a surreal experience. I'd never swam in a sort of rooftop swimming pool before. Um, But because what we were planning to do was just try and enjoy our last few days in this um, really wonderful part of the world, I think we thought having something like that where we could kind of just hang out and swim and enjoy the sun uh, and it wouldn't cost us any money would be a really nice thing. And I do remember sitting there drinking a little bit of rum by the pool and doing quite a bit of swimming and trying to sort of top up my tan before before returning to the UK and it was quite strange swimming with these sort of tall buildings overlooking you quite an odd urban kind of swimming pool setting I also remember at the time having lots of sort of feelings of sadness that this whole crazy kind of experience was coming to an end and wondering what on earth I was going to do because I had no 
no definite plans for when I got back to the UK. I hadn't, I didn't really have a career path in mind. And so there was a lot of anxiety and kind of sadness about having to deal with, you know, the next phase of my life. So I remember sitting by the pool and kind of having all these thoughts about that. I'm sure as we did in a lot of places, we also did a lot of walking around the city. Um, I have a vague memory of visiting a building, like a ruined building, and in my memory, it was part of Manuel Noriega's compound or something, um, and it was kind of derelict. But I don't know if that's correct, because I was Googling it to try and figure out what that might be, and I couldn't find anything. I mean, there's there's a lot there's a lot that you can see in Panama to do with um, when Noriega was in power. But I couldn't find anything referring to this particular building and where I thought it was roughly located. So I'm not sure if anyone knows, um, please uh, leave a comment and tell me what it might have been that I saw. But my memory of it was that it was kind of a compound building and you could just kind of see walls remaining. So one thing that I have absolutely no memory of, which I only know about thanks to my sketchbook pages, is that I saw, I went to an anthropological museum and saw an exhibit of pre-Columbian gold, like little gold figurines and things. I've got no memory of this at all, but I've got drawings from there. So I must, it must have been something I did. And I did a bit of Googling about what this museum might have been. I think quite possibly it was the Reina Torres de Arras Museum, which I gathered from looking online has since closed since I was there. Um, but again, I'm not sure. I've just got the note in my sketchbook that it was an anthropology museum and that they had a lot of gold there. One thing that I knew I had a vague memory of doing in Panama was was going to some kind of zoo or nature reserve. And through looking at my notes in the guidebook and stuff, I think I figured out what it was. There's a national park called Soberania, which apparently is 40 minutes outside of Panama City um, and preserves some land next to the Panama Canal, the watershed area of the canal. Um, And I had this vague memory that I saw a harpy eagle, which I think is the national bird of Panama, Um, They're these beautiful eagles that have these kind of feathery crests around their heads. Um, And I had a vague memory that I'd seen one of those. So I was like, I must have gone to some kind of zoo. But apparently this national park has some harpy eagles. It has botanical gardens and a zoo area. And we almost certainly would have wanted to go and do some walking there from the sounds of it. Um, And I also read in the guidebook that you can visit that national park Um, as part of the same day trip if you go and see the Panama Canal. There's a place called the Miraflores Locks where you can kind of see ships coming along the canal um, as they get moved from one level to the next. So I'm sure what we did, we did this recommended day trip where you get to see the locks. Um, You can also see the National Park in, in the same outing. I have a vague memory of being on a bus in Panama and standing up in the aisle because it was full and a really nice lady on the bus kind of gesturing. She was offering for me to put my bag on her lap for the journey so that I wouldn't have to have it on my back. So I think I have a funny feeling that was on this outing. The other thing I remember from seeing the the Panama Canal, I've got a photo of a boat going through there, but I remember very clearly there's a building as part of the locks, which is the tourist sort of visitor centre where you can go in and there's a little raised area where you can photograph the canal and the boats going through and you have to pay for entry to this. So we just walked along a little bit and we were in a kind of, I think, a parking lot or something alongside. And we were taking photos of the the locks and the boats through a chain link fence. And I remember a security guard coming over and telling us 
that we weren't allowed to take photos there. The only place we were allowed to take photos was inside the visitor centre, which was kind of funny because, you know, we would have been photographing exactly the same bit of the canal, but obviously they just want, you know, to make some tourist money if they can. But we didn't go in, we just uh, wandered off, I think, for our walk around the National Park instead. The other memory I had was of going to some kind of market for artisanias or uh, handmade goods, And I definitely remember buying a a sort of beaded bracelet and some bits and pieces like that. Again, in Panama, there's a lot of different indigenous groups and communities. And there's uh, a group called the Kuna, who I I found out from looking online, have now changed the spelling to Guna, I think, uh, if I'm understanding that right. And they're very well known for their dress. They have some beautiful handmade textiles that they wear. Um, Often women wear these kind of handmade embroidered textiles as a sort of bodice part of their outfit. And also they wear a lot of beads on their arms and legs, kind of covering the whole shin from the ankle to the knee of the leg. And then also on the arms from the wrist to the elbow, just amazing colours and really, really beautiful. And I remember really wanting to buy some beadwork from them. Um, There's a national market of artisanias in Panama City, so I think that's probably where we went to do that. In fact, the um, the handmade textiles that the Guna people use as part of their blouses, they're called molas. And the photo that I've used as the image for this uh, podcast, which shows an embroidered fabric, is the one that I bought in Panama City. Um, it's really wonderful. It's kind of got this crazy design of ducks holding umbrellas on it. <laughs> and it's sort of made from layering a few different layers of fabrics. And the top layer has holes cut out of it and different coloured fabrics underneath so that you see the different colours coming through. And it's also got different layers and colours stitched on top of it. So it's a real kind of collage of colours and it's absolutely stunning. So I bought one of those and also some beads. And the photo that I use as the image for this podcast also has another bit of textile in it. The kind of long woven strap that you'll see in that photo is a woven head wrap, um, probably from Zunil in Guatemala. And I would have bought that at the market at Chichi Castanango that I described in an earlier episode. Um, It's really, really long. And a lot of the women in that part of the country wear these kind of wrapped round and round their heads. The final sketch that I have in my sketchbook that I didn't finish, it's the only one that I didn't finish either at the time or after I got back. It shows a little corner of a sort of island in the water. And I did have a memory of taking a boat somewhere to an island just outside of Panama City. And from my research, I think that would have been Isla Toboga. There's a little archipelago of islands, San Blas Archipelago, outside of Panama City, but... To me, that looks that looks like it's uh, way too far away, um, and I don't think we would have gone there. Yeah, T- Toboga Island is, it says here, about 20 kilometres from Panama City. Uh, it's a volcanic island in the Gulf of Panama, and I think all we did was just take a boat out for a day trip and sit on the beach so that we didn't spend a lot of money. The only other thing I really remember about Panama City was just being able to see all the, the ships kind of queuing to go through the canal and how crazy that was to see these enormous kind of cargo ships kind of forming a queue out to sea as far as the eye could see. So yeah, I'm afraid that is all I can tell you about my time in Panama. Looking back on the journals and kind of thinking about what people might wonder about if they'd read my graphic novel Follow Me In, I kind of thought it was interesting that I didn't really write in these journals anything about uh, personal stuff that was going on. 
if you've read my book, you'll know that one of the storylines that runs through it is uh, a sort of exploration of where I was at with my relationship at the time. I was travelling with Richard, my ex-partner, and the book deals with some sort of ambivalence about what was going on in that relationship and me kind of, as quite a young person, trying to understand what I should do with that relationship. Um, So none of that really comes into these journals, and I was wondering why I didn't write about any of that stuff. And I think... Partly, I just wasn't that interested in recording personal feelings. I really wanted my journals to be a record of the places that I was visiting. And I really wanted to remember as many details as possible about what I saw and experienced. And I just wasn't that interested in documenting sort of relationship stuff or my feelings. Um, Also, probably at the back of my mind, I, I thought I would probably let people read these journals after I got home. And I didn't want there to be too much personal stuff in them for that reason. Um, but yeah, the the relationship I was in at this time, it continued for a little while after I got back to the UK. In fact, we did another trip together around um, parts of Central and Eastern Europe as well after this trip, um, before that relationship finally did come to an end. So yeah, there was no kind of dramatic ending to, to the, the story that I sort of began to explore and follow me in. We just had this wonderful experience of this nine months. Really did feel at the time like an extraordinary experience. I kind of, I think I kind of knew I would be unlikely to ever do anything like that again. So I really just savoured every moment and absolutely loved it in spite of all the kind of getting ill and, you know, difficulties that we had along the way. Really, really appreciated that I got to do that. Um, I still love to this day going to new places, absolutely love it, but there's no way I don't, I don't think I would ever travel in that way again, you know, backpacking like that and going from place to place without any um, kind of plan in mind. So, yeah, it was a great thing to do while I was still young and I didn't have a lot of responsibilities or I still had the energy to kind of do this. I wasn't especially fit when I started this trip, so it was kind of interesting that to find that love of kind of hiking that I discovered on the way and to kind of push myself physically, which I'd never really done before. And also it provided such an inspiration to me to get back into drawing. So, yeah, really appreciated it for all of those reasons. Well, that's about all that I can think of to say to conclude this podcast. Um... Thank you very much for listening um, and joining me on this reread that I was doing of all my notes and journal entries. Uh, I'm thinking about potentially maybe recording the Mexico part of my journals at a future date, maybe when I've finished the current graphic novel I'm working on, because I'm just coming into the deadline crunch phase of that and I don't want to do any more recording um, until that's out of the way. But if you'd be interested in hearing more from the Mexico part of my trip, there's so many details and things that I wasn't able to fit into the graphic novel. Um, Leave me a message underneath and let me know what you think. Again, thank you very much for listening. And as always, you can kind of see pictures and drawings from this trip that I've been putting on my social media. And you can see more of my artwork and my writing and stuff at my website, katrinachapman.com. That's K-A-T-R-I-O-N-A. And Chapman is C-H-A-P-M-A-N. Thank you. Bye.